0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org.
1: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer.
2: Strange in your neighborhood, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! If it's something weird and it don't look good, who you gonna call?
0: Ghostbusters!
2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 129. We're getting on up there in the three digits. My name is Nathan Gilmore and I am a well, I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College. I'm joined on the line by Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you doing, Michael?
1: I'm doing well. How about you, Nathan?
2: Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. It's 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 almost spring break here at Emmanuel College, so I'm feeling like I might actually make it to Monday.
1: Our spring break is the week after that, so I have a little little further to make it.
2: All right, all right. Also joined on the line from Franklin Springs, Georgia, Emmanuel College. He's an assistant professor of English. He is Danny Anderson. Danny, how are you? I'm hanging in there, Nathan, uh, as usual. And for our longtime listeners, we have a special treat today. It's a man who needs no introduction, but yet he always demands that I make one. Mr. David Grubbs, <laughs> soon to be Doctor David Grubbs. David, how's that dissertation cooking?
0: Oh, it's 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 done. I f- I finished that. It's cooked. Hooray! <laughs> 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 That's it. It's it's not defend. It's not defended yet. The 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 tasters have not yet uh, weighed in on the, uh, the 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 quality of my entree. So, All right, you know. For All right. those
1: of our listeners who have never written a dissertation, imagine having to sneeze for three years.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> uh, well, listeners, if you're not uh, big on arithmetic, if you majored in English back in college, uh, that does make four hosts today, which is a relative rarity here on the Christian Humanist podcast. But we are thrilled to have... Uh, All four of our hosts here, and we're going to talk some ghostbusters today. But first, we've got some email to read. Danny, uh, can you tell us what Joel Joslin has to say? Sure thing, Nathan. Uh, Joel has to say, I think an episode on on Terrence
3: Malick could be very interesting. He's both one of the uh, most theological American filmmakers today and one of the most controversial. Controversial mostly for stylistic reasons, not thematic ones. If you aren't uh, familiar with him, just uh, watching The Tree of Life and possibly Days of Heaven could provide plenty of material for an episode. Also, you guys talk so much about Updike that I've decided I really need to read him. Uh, Where should I start? The Rabbit Trilogy? The one with the Barthian professor and the computer science kid or something else?
1: Why don't I take that one first since I'm the one who knows? Start with the Rabbit books. Um, Read Rabbit Run. And if you like that, keep going in those books. I, I always warn people, Rabbit Dukes is a just incredibly violent, ugly book. It's the worst of the series, but you kind of need to read it if you're going to keep going through all of them. So uh, read Rabbit Run, and then when you get to Rabbit Dukes, just remember you have to power through it. Uh, don't start with Couples, which is the other one some people sometimes tell you to start with. I think that's an incredibly dated book. Uh, that I mean, it, it's a book that achieves most of its power through shock. I think, but what shocks people in 1968 is obviously not what shocks people today. I, I am not impressed at all with that book. The other place you might consider starting is with his, uh, the, the collection of short stories that came out, I think right after Rabbit Run, um, Pigeon Feathers and other stories. Uh, you know, Updike is, depending on who you ask, a better short story writer than he is a novelist, and those, those stories are his best. So I would either start with Rabbit Run or with Pigeon Feathers. Does anybody have anything to add to that?
3: No, no, I, uh, I concur. I think Rabbit Run would be a, a great place to start. And, and don't forget about his, his short fiction. Uh, like uh, like that's a, something that he does extremely well, his, his short fiction. And he's an underrated poet too, if you can dig up some of his poetry. Um, I've enjoyed that. He, he, he
1: has a lot of light verse. And then he has a very long, like almost epic poem about middle age called Midpoint.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: hmm
1: an easy humanism plagues the land. I choose to take an otherworldly stand. That's that's one of the lines.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, how about Terrence Malick? I, once again, I'm I'm not a film person, so that name doesn't ring a bell for me. Uh, I yeah,
3: go ahead,
1: I,
2: Well, I've seen uh, Thin Red
3: lines too, his, his, uh, and that's actually a. a A very, like, subdued war movie. It's very kind of thoughtful and and, and slow-moving. People who like war movies typically I don't think like that movie. This may be the stylistic controversy that uh, uh, Joel was talking about. But uh, I think that it was was actually a very lovely movie. Um, And that's – I see he wrote Badlands, which I didn't realize that. Which, by the way, the
1: song that led off last week's episode, Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, is based on Badlands.
3: Ah, uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, a great, well, a great, great movie, actually.
1: Although the the you know the uh, this Bruce Springsteen song "Badlands" not based on "Badlands."
3: No, and not on that album. So.
1: I'm sorry. I haven't <laughs> seen "Badlands." I know I'm, I know I'm supposed to. I haven't seen "Days of Heaven" either. I yeah. I hear he. I, I saw "Thin Red Lung when I was in high school, and I liked it, but I, I don't have much intelligent to say about it now. I am kind of scared off of him because of his reputation is being very slow moving and difficult but mm. that is not a very good excuse is it
3: <laughs> don't tell my students that please yeah seriously
1: david did you have you seen any Terrence Malick films
0: do they have ninjas in them so probably no so probably no
1: Fair enough. I thought I would ask rather than just pretend you weren't here.
0: <laughs> you know, All right. Well, keep, keep, keep in mind that you brought me for an ep- you brought me back for an episode in which we're talking about Ghostbusters, not Terrence Malick. So you know, there's yeah, but that. But you
1: hadn't seen Ghostbusters either.
0: Yes, but that was not because I would not see Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> it's because my mom and dad wouldn't let me when it came out.
2: Gotcha. We will get to that, but first. Uh, listener Chen Boulay, who has become one of our regular commenters on the blog, so we appreciate him uh, in several venues. He also posts on our Facebook group, uh, which is to say, listeners, be like Chen Boulay. Uh, writes us an email, Dear Christian Humanists, in the greater Seattle area, the average cost for a complete K-8 through education for two children at a Christian school is $171,691. A Christian high school averages $92,273. For two children. The total cost averages $264,000 to educate two children at a Christian school from K to 12. Inflation will make these costs even higher. Based on the rates at Emmanuel College, Crown College, and Central Christian College, the average cost to educate two children at one of your Christian colleges is $221,000. That assumes four years for each student. Uh, there's some discussion amongst some elders at my church with respect to what should be the educational priority. For a Christian family, specifically if financial resources are limited, what should the available funds be applied towards? A Christian primary education or a Christian college education? Uh, Given your personal histories and your professional credentials as educators, what are your opinions on the following questions? Number one, what is more important to creating and forming a Christian humanist heart and mind, Christian primary or Christian college? Number two, what's the greater threat? to undermining a Christian student's faith, the faculty administration curriculum at a public high school or a public university. Number three, can any of you provide references to a book or article that provides compelling arguments for Christians to send their children to a public school for their primary education? Uh, Relatively long email, but very thoughtful, and I'll just note that he did, in fact, include a spreadsheet with all of these figures. Uh, and it looks like Emmanuel College is definitely the low mark of our three. Just wanted to note that. Parents Woo. out there, send your kids to Emmanuel. <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> Yay, we're last. Yeah. No, 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 no. We, are... <laughs> I know what you mean. But we are most economical, Danny. Most uh, economical. We're, good. I'm going to pull st- you up.
1: But you get what you pay for.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, that's just mean. Well, yeah, yeah, you get what you get. Uh, what do you think, guys? I mean, quick. Qu- quick answers here uh respond to Chen Boulay Michael
1: I feel just radically unqualified to talk about this I went to a public high school and a Christian college so I you know because that's the route I took that is the that is my natural response but I don't have children I'm probably not going to have children if I did have them I don't think I would probably send them to a Christian high school uh, on the other hand, I'm not a huge fan of the public high schools either, not because I'm afraid they make people lose their faith, but because I, I think they're just kind of not particularly academically rigorous for the most part, although I did go to school in Georgia. So, you know, number forty-eight in education. Um,
2: <laughs> Danny? Yeah. Oh, sorry. You're, you're still going. My bad. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, my, my my recommendation would be the college, but I'm not sure that actually carries much weight.
2: All right.
3: Danny? Well, I, I went to neither. I went to uh, public uh, both way and uh, or both for both educations. And I, I, you know, be meeting from Cleveland. I feel like there's a, a different complication. You tend to go to a Catholic or a, a a religious school because the public schools are so bad. And so like there's sort of a uh, um a quality level, there's a quality distinction that complicates what he's talking about in terms of the theological uh training that's going on. Um and so I I oh, good lord, if I had to <laughs> I don't know that I could pick one of those answers. I, I guess if I, in an ideal world, I would say public high school and Christian college, but You children um,
1: go to public high school or public school,
0: Danny? They they do. Yes. All right, David. Um, as the homeschooled kid, um, you know, can I, can I say pox on everyone's houses? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, in, in terms of, of, in terms of bang for the buck, um, I, I I would, I would probably agree with you, Michael, um, that, or, or actually both of you guys that, that, that college is the more important thing. Um, honestly, you know, I, I was, I was educated at home, um, mainly for, uh, for religious reasons. My parents felt very strongly, uh, about that. And, and so, you know, I was, I was taught the Christian faith and all the rest of that, but I was not, not a Christian humanist. I was a little kid learning math as such. Right. So the kind, the kinds of, you know, Engagement with texts and philosophies and all the rest of that—I wasn't really doing that, um, even in even in high school. I don't think I was just—I don't think I was there yet. I was there in college, and so you know, if it, you know, I I I I think it would it would have been wasted on me if I'd been sent to a Christian elementary school or something like that where they were trying to make me read Milton or whatever. I'd have been like, no, let me play.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right well i'll round up this little uh, mclaughlin group around the horn and i'll say uh, wrong, if, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wrong! <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that if you are sending children to schools as a prophylactic against the contamination of culture uh save your money yeah uh i will say that for entirely different reasons i would tend to pick the christian college And it's largely for what David was just talking about. I mean, when, at least in my own history, and I'll go ahead and weigh in here, uh, I went to very good public grade school, middle school, high school. Uh, I went to a Christian undergraduate college and to a Christian seminary, then wrapped up my educational career at a large state university. I, I would say I learned things in all of the above places, but as far as the theological engagement goes, that I think is the best part of a Christian college, not guarding you against bad thoughts, but actually acquiring the intellectual capacity to name why they are bad thoughts. I don't think I would have been capable of that when I was 15. I thought, you know, I'm going to agree with David on that one. so for entirely different reasons, Chen Boule, I would say go with the Christian college.
1: And your your children go to public,
2: schools. oh absolutely yeah, yeah, and your wife and, teaches and I'll, in a
1: public
2: school I, I yeah, my wife teaches at a public school, uh you know, my grandma taught it at public school i mean i am a I'm part of a family of public educators, uh and you know I'll, I'll admit that I'm probably a more vocal advocate for public schools than the other three guys are, but that's because of that uh pesky democratic streak that Michael often makes fun of <laughs>
1: um, you know, and I hope I hope uh, you and your wife aren't offended by my crack at Georgia education.
2: Oh, believe me, Michael, I've, I've heard much worse. I've heard much worse. Often from folks. No, I won't finish that sentence. All right, next email, careful. Michael, save me from myself.
1: Yeah, this email is from Brandon Gerbrock. Uh he says that his situation has stopped him from listening to podcasts as he no longer commutes anywhere, but this past weekend he had to make a day trip to Bishop, California and back to pick up his dog who was struck by a car. He said his dog is okay. Which is good. Yeah, good. In anticipation good. of this thirteen hour day trip I caught up with my favorite podcast, yours. You flatter us. Uh-huh. I began with your episode on Monster Movies. Michael, I am with you, brother, on the lack of desire to watch horror flicks. I've always told people life is frightening enough. Why would I want to pay somebody to make me feel like my life is in danger? The scariest movie I've seen is the English version of The Ring. I began watching it thinking it was a mystery movie, but at the time I realized it was a horror flick, I was too invested in the film to turn away. I hated it. Hated it. Not because it wasn't good, but because it frightened me. I have never seen that movie.
3: Nor have I. I like the Japanese version better hipster sorry yeah i was (laughs) gonna say i also listened to god is dead
1: alice monroe orwell catching up with listeners danny's trip to the mla and the pulp fiction episode i heard about 30 minutes of the episode on milton's poem but it didn't grapple me like so many of your episodes do i have yet to see pulp fiction but i feel more intrigued to watch it after listening to your critiques of I'm sorry I can't add any deep insights to the material you've covered, but I listen to you because you take me places I've never been. I'm excited to hear Grubsy is working on his dissertation. Sin, I can brag that I listened to your podcast before any of you had PhDs. <laughs> Danny, it was <laughs> shocking to hear a new voice inside the CHP, and it was delightful.
3: <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> that's and, he,
1: and he says, one more thing. Your perspective on the Catholic Church is really spot on with my own. I am Lutheran, but as I've matured and become very cynical of non denominational Western Protestantism, I've grown very fond of the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church. I still disagree with some of their beliefs, but they don't offend me, and I don't believe them to be my enemy. This gets kind of dicey with the Council of Trent that more or less condemns me, but hey, that's their problem. I'm totally lovable. <laughs> <laughs> we agree, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> We also, I should say, we have two other emails that we got this week that we just don't have time to read, so we're going to table those and come back to them some, uh, next week. So, M. Limber and Ross Vermeer, we have not forgotten you. We're just right. saving you for later. You
2: will hear from us next week. We promise.
1: And we didn't, we didn't put you off because we we necessarily liked the other emails better. Just those are the ones that came in first. So,
2: right, fair right. play. So this week we are talking about Ghostbusters. I had actually thought about doing this episode back in December when I was kind of brainstorming what kinds of episodes I could host because it is the 30th anniversary of the film and I kind of dug the film as a kid. Uh, But uh, here recently, last week and a half or so, uh, actor and writer Harold Ramis, uh, who played uh, Egon Spangler in the film, uh, died. Uh, And, you know, I, I for one was sad for it. I'm a big fan of... Ghostbusters and Caddyshack and Stripes and a lot of his comedy writing. So, uh, it's one of those things where, uh, it was just a perfect time to do this episode. Besides that, there are four Gus- Ghostbusters. For this episode, there are four of us. What could be better, right? Uh, do we each and one, David. To claim one? What now?
1: Do we each want to claim one?
2: We're going to get there. Don't oh, worry. Sorry.
1: <laughs> Should have read the show notes. Uh, yeah,
2: I, that that often helps to, you know, participate. What a deal <laughs> I need to introduce you to some of my freshmen. <laughs> but yes. David, I want you to hit lead off. Uh the real reason I wanted to do a Ghostbusters episode was on a recent rewatching on Netflix. Uh it was a late night, I had a sick kid, long story. I realized that the movie opens up with a a, a fun little riff on the postmodern university. What kind of academics are Stantz, Spengler and Venkman? And what's the character of their academic world? Uh oh,
0: well, they're different, for one thing, from from each other. Um, Vingman is, uh, well, slimy, frankly, <laughs> and and seems to be basically a, a an academic tick on the underbelly of academia. Um, hoping to be acad- academic enough to keep the grants coming but not actually terribly serious but um, you know the the opening scene uh, with him is basically him in, in, in the middle of the commission of a bunch of egregious violations of academic ethics and studies with human subjects
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> which I've been finding out a lot more about this year because you know the, they've been talking about it in faculty meetings and I'm like, oh, I've, I never do experiments with human subjects in my English classes so I should do that <laughs> My English <laughs> anyway. classes
1: are a series of experiments with human
0: subjects <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, Spangler seems to be in it just to keep the wolf from the door, not have to work very hard, and maybe make some time with the prettier human subjects Um Uh Oh, sorry, Tingman. Um Spingler and oh gosh, I can never remember. Stance, Ray Stance. Thank you. <laughs> I can never remember his character's name. Uh Spingler and Stance are the true believers in this little paranormal department. Um they're they're the the theorists and the zealots who are firmly convinced of the the value of their studies. Um with which they differ from the school administration, and uh, so they have they have a scene early on in the movie when they basically get um, evicted from their little basement dungeon where they've been carrying on their studies um, ironically, just as they've actually managed to get some kind of real uh real evidence for what they study mm-hmm. but <sighs> So, so you've got on one hand you've got Bengman, who's who's basically a parasite. He's basically everything that, that you know conservatives are, are are kind of suspicious that academics really are. Um, and then you've got Stans and Spingler, who are the other the other cliche uh, of the people who are obsessively interested and invested in the importance of something that literally no one else cares about. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so they they get evicted, but then you have the conversation um, between I believe it's uh, Stans and Vinkman about uh, well that academia or that, that academia now demands results from the research. You're you're not just pure researchers; you actually have to produce something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the fact that they're not being productive, uh, I don't know. Maybe they weren't publishing enough. Um, anyway. Their uh the rent the, the rent ran out. <laughs> so
3: and, what Andy, were you you anything?
2: <clears throat>
0: uh
3: did you pass it to me? Yeah. Ah. Um you know, it reminds me a bit their oh field, I suppose. If you think about the the parody of academia that you see in, in Don's novel, uh, novel white noise, you have these people studying these really esoteric things. And, and it is sort of like knowledge for its own sake run amok on some level, people studying cereal boxes and and whatnot. And, <laughs> and, and, and in, uh, and in this, in this movie, you, you do have this sense of, of something that's completely like without utility. Uh, and yet the movie then, Attempts to make something useful out of it, like there is this sense of taking this esoteric knowledge and making it into a business. This is what the movie does, and and I feel like uh, on some level, it it's consistent with an idea of uh, of what Bill Redding's in uh, his book called uh, "The University in Ruins." He he refers. do it as the post-historical university instead of the postmodern university. But uh, what he refers to, the, the, the situation he's describing in that really terrific book um, from the mid '90s. Um, is is what's going on here it's sort of making uh like money out of uh out of study and, and i feel like it's ironic for the university that they kick them out just as as uh david is saying right now at the moment at which it's possible and, and i also find it juicily ironic that uh that they find the ghost in the new york public library the thing that begins like in, <laughs> in, a, in a place that is sort of this like ultimate kind of you know, vault of, of historical knowledge and tradition, uh, and that's where the ghost comes out of. That's going to end up like actually giving some legs to this uh, this crazy post historical, post modern uh, university field of study. So, mm-hmm.
1: and if you play the uh, if you play the video game that came out a few years ago, and I, I played it last <laughs> year, it's actually you know it's all the original cast came <laughs> back and did voices. It's if you like the movies, the the game is an awful lot of fun. But they they really expand on the the backstory of the the great lady librarian ghost and, uh, and, and make that even more clear what you're talking about
2: interesting. Uh, I'll be
1: you have to fight the man who killed her. Let me put it that way
2: oh, oh, eat.
1: yeah, yeah, it's a fun game i'll be if you like really if you like the movies and and wished you could live in that world it it really pretty much makes you feel like you do
2: <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, about the only other thing that I would say is that here recently when I was rereading uh, uh, Francois Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, I mean, what struck me, and I mean, the, this shows that I grew up grew up in the eighties. I'm pretty sure, but uh, when he described the you know the terroristic ethics of the modern research university, where you know it doesn't matter if what you are researching is true, it just matters whether you can convince the powerful to give you funding. Uh, <laughs> That this was one of the first scenes I thought of. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know. <laughs> go ahead, Michael.
1: You know, uh, the the other thing you want to think about in, in, in terms of that setup at the beginning is that Harold yeah. Ramis wrote Animal House and he wrote Caddyshack mm-hmm. and he wrote Meatballs. And, and so one of the things Harold Ramis specializes in is slobs versus snob stuff. And so even though Egon is a, you know, Snappy dresser and an academic, the Ghostbusters are set up from the beginning as people who are on the outskirts of society. That mm-hmm. The the powerful and the uh, well put together dislike them, and so this this ends up being in some ways a lot like Animal House, a victory of the disheveled over the well kept, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. and also the. <laughs> There's another uh, like parallel there when Venkman is hitting on that that girl during the experiment at the beginning. It's very much like Donald Sutherland's character of the English professor sleeping with his students in Animal House. Like, there is this sort of oh, yeah. uh, sense of professional uh, like propriety being broken down in in, in the service of this uh, slobs versus snobs meta narrative. This is my last step. <laughs> I'm going to go crazy with the terms like meta narrative. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Hey
1: man, <laughs> Gilmore brought in leotard so I don't think I don't think you're out of line for saying meta narrative. That's a,
2: yes, and, and thus I became a character in White Noise. I know I. <laughs> I,
3: still, I feel weird saying it in service of the movie Ghostbusters, but
0: uh, if, if it's... <laughs> well, it well, did make me it did all make me feel very you know a, a whole lot better about my incredibly uh, marketable English degree.
2: <laughs>
1: mm, true.
2: It's not a PhD in paranormal studies. Your office is hey, nicer man. than theirs.
1: Hey, Vic has two degrees, two PhDs: parapsychology and psychology.
0: Man, you know the
1: other thing is that's they're at Columbia University. Like, they, it's not like they're at some nothing university. They're at one of the top five universities in the country. Right. I, I don't know why they went into business for themselves instead of trying to find a lesser school in New York City that would support them. Well, because that would have been a very boring movie,
2: yeah. Yeah, the, the same reason there was only one guy in New York City who applied to be a Ghostbuster. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Eventually, you just got to say, keep that movie rolling long. Coincidentally,
1: the only black man in New York
2: City. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now that you Apparently. mention it. Apparently. <laughs> well, nice. Michael, another dynamic that struck me recently is that, like many movies about paranormal things since Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters itself features... Voices that want to turn ghosts into entities that one can categorize, name with Greek and Latin prefixes, and even measure with a PKE meter. Uh, Speak a little bit about the scientism of certain characters in the film. And I'll give you bonus points if you can make a reference to Richard Weaver as you go.
1: I don't know if I can do Richard Weaver, but I (laughs) want to point out again the movies written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. Ramis is a skeptic or was a skeptic, an atheist. Um, He actually described himself as an existentialist for the end of his life, which makes me like him even more. But Aykroyd's a true believer. Aykroyd uh, really believes in the paranormal, and apparently he believes in it mostly the way it is presented in that movie, minus the laughs. So the story goes that he did an enormous amount of research into the terms and the equipment they used in that movie, and uh, it is – Accurate may not be the best word because I think most people would recognize that as, or would call it a pseudoscience, uh, but accurate as far as Ackroyd is concerned. So I don't know if that diffuses the point or makes the point stronger that it's not so much the Ghostbusters reaching for scientific credibility as it is Ackroyd himself reaching for scientific credibility. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's a very organized supernatural world, one with uh, roots in – Ancient Mesopotamia, right? I, I believe uh, Gozer is a Sumerian god.
2: Sumerian, yep, yep. Was,
1: Yeah, yeah. Call- you,
2: you were supposed to say uh, Babylonian. Someone was going to correct you and say Sumerian. Sorry, I couldn't remember
1: which one <laughs> it was. So, but yeah, you, you do. You have, you have a sense watching this movie that behind it somewhere there is a library's worth of material on the paranormal. And the reason you get that sense is because, yes, indeed there is an Ackroyd. Owns that library, uh, or, or at least at least has a library card for it. So, I mean, it, awesome. it, I, I think I think that's something you have to keep in mind. That while this this is a movie where these things are presented for laughs, belief in the supernatural in this movie is actually treated as a sign of intellectual responsibility and intelligence, and and that is, I imagine, how Aykroyd sees things. mm Hmm. Yeah, and you know, I I don't think every, it's not. I'm not. What I'm not saying is that this is a scientifically accurate movie. You get the the great scene when they're riding up in the uh, riding up in the elevator, and and Vinkman says each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear reactor on on his back, and that's a very funny scene. But <laughs> but I, 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 obviously that technology doesn't really exist. So I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the the sorry, listeners the classifications <laughs> of the spirits and things like that are, is not made up for this movie. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, a wealth of knowledge that Ackroyd is drawing on
0: and Ramis. Grubs? Too, but oh, sorry. Not. Grubs. Um, it, it's, it's actually kind of funny cause there's a, um, there's a history to this stuff too. Um, in both, uh, actual, the, the relationship between actual, the the history of science and this kind of paranormal research and in fiction. um, There's a book, a book I read by a guy named Craig Hazen called uh, The Village Enlightenment in America. And it's basically looking at uh, different different figures in 19th century America who tried to explain the supernatural in terms of the science of the times. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of those was a, a guy, actually a pretty famous chemist whose name completely slips my mind, <laughs> who who converted to spiritualism and spent the rest of his life trying to design instruments that would detect ghosts. Right. Um. So you know, there this was this was the thing. <laughs> and then uh, there was a book called Karnaki the Ghost Finder in the nineteen teens. Um, in which you have this figure named Karnaki, who has an electrical pentacle to protect him from spirits, and he has categories to describe all the different kinds of hauntings and the different things that are effective against them. And um, as I was watching Ghostbusters, I was like, "Hey, this is like 1980s Karnaki." Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. it was really it was really neat because you know, yeah, again, you know, Dan Aykroyd's dealing with something that's got deep roots and I think he knows the things that I knew going into it. I, mm-hmm. I I think he's playing in on that. It's kinda cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the Richard Weaver essay I had in mind, Michael, was actually the uh scientism in uh contemporary rhetoric or no. I'm trying to think. Scientistic terminology in contemporary social theory. I think that's the name of the essay. Uh, but where he talks about how, you know, things that the ancients would have treated with, you know, a sort of moral gravity now get sort of medicalized and classified and put into taxonomies uh, so that the sense of responsibility basically disappears into a cloud of cata- of categories. Uh, and then mm. that, you know, again, I, I wasn't thinking about that when I was eight years old watching this for the first time. Uh but <laughs> it's certainly something that occurred to me this go round. Well, and, and you so,
1: control these you control these supernatural beings not by prayer, not by sacrifice,
2: but by shooting proton beams at them. Yes indeed. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Which I'm not I'm not sure the ancient Sumerians would have thought that.
2: <laughs> well, although and you know, I, here I'm gonna make a, a point about, you know, the the close affinities between the scientific revolution and the sort of renaissance of witchcraft in the 17th century. I mean, the two were not all that far apart from each other. So, I mean, the idea that you could manipulate unseen forces. uh, And in fact, I mean, you know, I I like to pitch that at students when we're about to study a text that involves sorcery and magic and such. I said, you know, if, if a class of people arose that said there were unseen forces in the world that, you know, they could manipulate by means of their secret knowledge, Uh, Who am I talking about? You know, about half the students when I have them write it down will write down scientists, and about half will write down wizards, and you know (laughs) that's that's about right. (laughs) So, well, Danny, the the scientism of course doesn't go unchallenged even in the movie. Uh, Once Winston Zedmore shows up, at the very least it gets a foil. So, Danny, I've actually heard you in person. Uh, riff about the scene with Stance and Zedmore in the car. So set that scene up for us. Interpret it for our listeners.
3: Uh, can I set up your setup, please? I wasn't just riffing on it in the hall. We were hey, doing, I just imagined uh, you just walking up to Nathan <laughs> and
1: starting <listening>. to <laughs> <laughs> so Stance and Zedmore are in the car. <laughs> yeah, let's,
3: a little context for my, my own reputation here. Um, <laughs> um, well, first of all, it is a uh uh, it's a quiet moment uh, in the movie for one thing. So narratively, it's kind of a little pause before the proverbial hell breaks loose moment or for the rest of the movie. Um, and it, it kind of – to that point, I mean you have Dana who's sort of at risk, right? And so it's a very kind of localized threat for the most part for this movie. And this uh, this contemplation between uh, Dan Aykroyd and, uh, and uh, Winston uh, – What's his name? Winston and Stance. I forgot uh, Stance. Um, it's kind of a, uh, a moment to sort of imp- impose bigger stakes on the movie, uh, for mm-hmm. the movie. And so uh, there's now a sort of a universal threat of uh, what's going on. Um, and I think that it's a very short scene. It's only like a minute and a half long. But it's if you uh, look at the way that they're talking, um, it begins with Winston asking, uh, stance if he, uh, believes in God. And his response is very flippant, like never met him or something like that. And, and Winston, uh, brings it right back into the metaphysic. Well, I love Jesus's style. He says, uh, I'm a big <laughs> fan of God. I love Jesus's <laughs> style. Um, and, uh, which is, it's very funny and everything, but it's very sincere too. And, and it's sort of, um, a nice counterweight to the pure sort of, uh, materialism of, of, of stance. And, and then, uh, Immediately after that, Stance goes into these looking at these blueprints uh, of the architectural drawings of this building. And, and yet again, we have scientific like equipment that's uh, somehow controlling the supernatural. Uh, the, mm-hmm. And so uh, like we you guys were just talking about before, which I personally, I mean, I love this movie, but I personally find that sort of um, approach to supernatural uh, less interesting uh, because I, I just – if, if humans can control the supernatural, the superness of it tends to like be diminished <laughs> to me. Um, but uh, uh, but uh, so he goes right back to the sort of uh, myth uh, architectural draw- drawings, and then he starts talking about mythologies. Whereas Winston takes these stories very literally, right? Um, and yet uh, Stance knows the Bible. He he quotes from Revelation. I actually looked this up. He has the book wrong. It's not. He says it's Revelation seven twelve, but it's actually Revelation six twelve. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the 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 about the sixth seal opening, basically, and he quotes it verbatim right from memory, right? Mm-hmm. And and then he uh, associates it with just mythology again, a sort of scientistic uh, approach to things, um, and and so uh, and the, that's basically the gist of the. Uh, of the conversation, Winston then says uh, something along the lines of, did you ever think that this is the end of time because the dead are rising and, and they just, they can't uh, stance can't deal with that. So let's, let's let's hear some music and that's the end of the scene. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So that is the debate that he's sort of the conscience of, of, uh, for, uh, for religion in this, uh, in this metaphysic. And I think in that way, foil, as you say, is a good word for him. And because in a, uh, a story world like, of like this, Uh, With this sort of metaphysic, at least, there simply has to be some kind of reflection about how traditional metaphysics might be affected by it. And I think that that's kind of one thing that this little uh, uh, piece of the movie, it's a very uh, uh, tiny piece of the movie, but it allows that kind of deeper contemplation uh, to impose itself. Um,
0: I I, I agreed. I, I found that scene really, really interesting because I was waiting because you have these very scientific um science-minded individuals who are completely invested in i don't know in tomes talking about gods and demons mm-hmm. you know they they're people who are you know they're basically sci- scientific pioneers you know out colonizing um those that materialistic science denies exists or at least says it can't really talk about. But they're like, nope, we're going to Um They had to get to God eventually. And so it was very it was it was very interesting to me that that, that was how they did it. That and that they had to introduce a completely new character for that conversation to happen. Mm-hmm. That was interesting to me.
3: One yeah. who's not been, like, uh, tainted by academic study, right? He's sort of just a, a guy from the street in a lot of ways. and so. Well,
1: and also he's the voice of the audience.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, what I find fascinating about that scene is that it's a character reversal, right? Because all of a sudden, Ray Stantz becomes the skeptic. Mm-hmm. You know, up to that point in the movie, he's been the one trying to get Peter Venkman to take this stuff seriously, But then, I mean, when, you know, Winston Zedmore brings the actual gravity of the moment to him, uh, he tries to blow it off. And I mean, he sounds a lot like Peter Venkman when he does so.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I'm sorry to keep uh, pushing it back to the video game, but that's canon, so I'm going to do it. Uh, (laughs) Sometime between the action of the second movie and the video game, apparently Zedmore gets a, a PhD at Egyptology what so i think that's interesting too they take this every man and he becomes a uh, he becomes another academic
2: oh your kid. oh see that 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 strikes me as a betrayal it really does <laughs> yeah, he's not just a paycheck anymore I'd, yeah i'd be like a, you know if han solo started studying at the jedi temple it's like no you can't do that not to my character <laughs>
0: Um, he, he cannot be embracing hokey religions and laying down his. Uh, that's his right. That's hair. right. That. Thank you, Grubbs. <laughs> you understand me.
2: <laughs> um. Well, thirty years after seeing this for the first time, I'm seeing all sorts of literary things going on here. I'm probably imposing them on the movie. I'm okay with that. One of them is the comedy of humors. Now, <laughs> David, I'm not sure that sanguine, choleric, phlegmatic, and melancholic work here. Uh, but then again, they might. So, David, if you were going to pitch this as a 20th century comedy of humors, how would you name the humor for each of the four Ghostbusters? And what situations arise when those humors are in the same place together?
0: OK, this is that. Yeah, this this is going to be a stretch. But here I go.
2: <laughs>
0: it was um, easiest to see. Uh, easiest to see once Zedmore gets in there. Because um, I think he's very clearly the sanguine in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just enthusiastic. He loves this town, you know. <laughs> um,
1: that one has always confused me. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 I know, I've, never, I've never understood why he yells that. <laughs> it, why not? He's I, sanguine. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's right. It, guess that's
0: right. It, it's it is just the pure glee of enjoying the crazy, crazy moment. You know that that's that's what I see there. Anyway, so Zedmore, I'd say he's the sanguine, right? He's he tends to be cheerful. He tends to not he d- he doesn't really brood, you know. When he, even when he's talking about Jesus, it's because how much he's he, he's he's a fan of his style, you know. Um, <laughs> not 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 super, not really very broody. Very, I, okay, he's my sanguine. Um, so I need my phlegmatic, uh, which is definitely Vinkman, who oh, is yeah. basically defined by. Ironic distance. I mean that that's that's his thing. He's he can't even engage when the woman he's ostensibly interested in is possessed by the devil and hovering <laughs> up in the air. I mean he can't even get out of that ironic, you know, sarcastic pose. You know when devil voices are talking at him. I mean, so yes, okay, he he's our phlegmatic. All right, um, and that leaves Stanson Zedmore. Um. Stance. No, no, it leads Stance and Spangler. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. Stance and Spangler. But, could, could they have picked more alien names? <laughs> what is alien about
1: the name Egon Spangler?
0: I I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> it, it barely has to be uttered. I'm not um, having children, but if we were, they would be named Egon
1: Spangler Farmer. All of them. would <laughs> be like George Foreman.
0: So that they know who their daddy is? What? <laughs> anyway. Um, Stance. Uh I, I'm I'm gonna peg him as our melancholy, not because he mopes around a lot, but because he's the he, he's he's the one who's sincerely emotionally engaged. Um he, and he's the only one I, I, I think in the whole movie he if I remember correctly, he's the only one of the four who ever actually looks sad. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, and then and then that Leaf Spengler, who is definitely our cleric. He's really? so driven. Oh yeah, he's 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 so driven, and so not in attuned in any way with other people's um, emotional interests. See, I think he, I think cleric
1: is like prone to emotional outburst.
0: Well, see, I see it as goal oriented but that but that but that's the problem is that what how do you translate the humors into mo- into the modern world you know it's 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 diff it's it's tough to see how they translate but i, I would see Spingler as you know Spingler is is choleric because he's so he's so goal oriented and and people oh what's what's the line um oh so they they uh the, se- the secretary's like oh you're a you're you're a great humanitarian, and he's like, Yeah, he's not human <laughs> <laughs> you know that that's to to me that's that's the very the very choleric people are not a factor. Let's move on towards our goal kind of attitude but your, your mother <laughs> I guess he
1: has that one outburst <laughs>
0: Okay, so somebody spin it differently. That's no,
2: a- I knew if anyone could do comedy of humors with this, you'd be the one, Grub. So. See, I,
1: I, I would have done it completely differently. All
2: right, hit us. I, Go would, for have, it.
1: I would have called Vankman the choleric, Egon the melancholic, and Stance the phlegmatic. But now that you've made such an impassioned case, I'm not sure I can still do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely, you can do it. No, the, the, the humors are all a complete roar shot anyway. And by the way, Michael, this is the
2: point where I'm going to say it's not for us to decide which of the four of us is which Ghostbuster. That's for our listeners. So, listeners, write in, <laughs> email, Facebook, blog, comment, however you want to do it. Let us know which of us is which Ghostbuster. I have uh, my,
1: I have my uh, list in my head.
2: All right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Go ahead then. Go ahead then.
1: Danny, I think is definitely Winston. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll
3: take it.
1: And not just because he came late. You know, not just because he there were the three of us, and then he came in.
0: <laughs>
1: David is uh, Ray, Ray stance.
0: Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and while I would like to think of myself as Egon, I think I'm probably closer to Peter, and uh, Nathan is Egon. Even All though right, I think now, he now. would like to think of himself as Peter.
2: Now justify that split for me. I
1: think I'm, <laughs> I think I'm the lazy smart aleck and that you're the hard worker. Must I remind you that I looked at the show notes for the first time about 15 minutes (laughs) before we started recording. (laughs) See, in my my head, I'm an Egon, but I think in real life, you know. All
2: right, all right. Well, listeners, you've heard Michael Michael Farmer's version of it. Uh, We want to see yours, so write in. I'm definitely interested in this. Uh, I think we can give a, a fictional christian humanist podcast windbreaker to the person with the best reasons for their assignments what do you say michael yeah
1: we can do that i mean since it doesn't cost us anything and it doesn't exist <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you can make it look however you want That's it could true. be like a letterman jacket or something from, right. from christian humanist university
1: <laughs> <A> letterman jacket <laughs> <laughs>
2: well michael backtracking a little bit in the film early on we meet dana and lewis uh they're apartment building neighbors who have at most a strange and awkward connection to each other yet as the plot lines converge they are connected on a really what you can only describe on a on a spiritual level uh that has to be some kind of commentary on urban loneliness uh talk a little bit about dana and lewis or just undercut my question if that's what you, it suits you better.
1: No, I think that works very well. Uh, Dana, less Dana seems to have uh, some sort of social life. She has a, one friend we see her talking to. She has a, a job that is must be a, some, somewhat emotionally fulfilling, right? She's a, uh, I believe she's a cellist in the symphony. Is that correct?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Um,
1: but the fact is, she lives alone. Um, she is. Lonely enough to agree to a date with Peter Venkman, whom she clearly <laughs> despises. And, and Lewis is even more obviously, I think, the product of urban alienation. Oh, my God. What a is,
2: hilarious character.
1: He throws this party and he, he we find out he doesn't have any friends at the party. They're all clients. And he says that so he can write it off as a business expense, except it's clear <laughs> that the real reason is he doesn't have any friends. Cause he tries to get Dana, whom he's clearly in love with to, to come to the party and uh, she won't come. And, and yeah. So, I mean, you get these, you get these two peripheral characters who on a screenwriting level, the reason they don't have any friends is because them having friends wouldn't contribute to the movie at all. So the reason we see Dana with her uh, friend from the symphony is that they are talking about her date with Peter Venkman and they needed someone for her to talk that over with. Uh, But um, if you're, if you're viewing this, not in terms of what the movie has to do to be a movie. Yeah. It's kind of a crippling image of urban alienation Uh, to, to the extent that the only way the two of them can have any kind of connection at all is for the gods to intervene. She becomes Mm -hmm. the uh, gatekeeper and he becomes the key master.
2: Even when, Dr. The, Freud. Even, when
1: the, <laughs> even when he's the key master, he's a putz, you know? He, he goes around asking everybody if, if they're the gatekeeper. You know, mm, he it's the horse. a horse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, yeah well, I mean, mean you uh, know, that ancient Sumerian god hasn't got much to work with there. <laughs> it, it's played
1: for laughs, but, I mean, beyond, but behind the comedy, there's something very, very sad in that man's life hmm
0: I I don't think it's even behind the comedy.
1: <laughs> do you know that uh Eddie Ardenough, who David and Nathan know from UGA, can do Moranus' whole speech about the last appearance of Gozer. <laughs> I, I did not know
2: that, but I don't doubt it for
1: a second.
0: And I'm not surprised. <laughs> wow. Oh shoot, that's funny. Um
2: All right. Well, moving on, Danny, we really shouldn't let this episode go past without noticing that our boys in Brown, as Michael already noted, do carry around fission reactors on their backs. (laughs) They retrofit a condemned fire station with something akin to a nuclear power plant. And they really don't find a true bad guy in this film until the EPA shows up. Uh, Is there some sort of eco-mojo going on here? Or all these coincidences in the height of the Cold War? Uh no, I don't think so at all. I think in fact I just
3: happened to stumble across an article about this in the wake of uh uh I didn't I didn't mean that word, uh of uh <laughs> oh, Harold Ramis' death. Um uh, in the aftermath of a, Harold Ramis' death is what I meant. Uh, the wake. Uh, yes. That was an accident, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um uh about the sort of Reagan era politics of this of this movie and you do see this sort of uh, representative of the federal government the environmental protective agency is uh the person who basically causes every bad thing to happen and he's a very wormy character anyway he's just the kind of only kind of unlikable person in the film other than gozer uh him herself and and so i think <laughs> that um uh, i think that uh there's clearly uh, a subtext to it. And in fact, I, I understand that the the Reagan White House really loved this movie and, and they probably saw something about themselves in it the, because there is sort of this um, sense that the entrepreneur is the uh, person who's going to save the day uh, in this movie. And the government, government regulations just sort of get in the way of that. And I feel like the um, – I can't in my own mind at least – uh, and I, this is not me uh, being political, but I can't separate uh, the what we were talking about before with the attack on uh, elitism that's rampant through all of these kinds of movies, uh, all the way back to Caddyshack and and and, and Animal House, certainly, uh, with the sort of replacement of elitism with entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and I feel mm-hmm. like that you see this in our politics today. Much of the kind of uh, uh, anti elitism madcap humor is kind of uh, sets the stage for the, uh, the say the tea party today that which uses a very similar kind of rhetoric <laughs> against the elite and and, uh, and 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 prizes the entrepreneur and so um, I do feel like that i, I wouldn 't associate with the Cold War, but I would associate it with uh, trickle down economic sort of uh,
2: economic philosophies so says Danny, not being political.
3: Did
1: I? Yeah. <laughs> did, Very that, did, that,
2: did that sound political? I'm sorry. Um, well, what do you got, Michael?
1: I I was definitely going to point out that this also ties into that slob's versus snobs. I, I I would see it less as an explicit political statement and more as a means to an end to get that across. Because I don't. I guess I, I shouldn't speak about their politics because I don't. I don't know what their politics are. But. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't seem like Reaganite conservatives to me, Aykroyd and Ramus mm-hmm. so I, yeah. I my guess would be it is less an explicit political statement and more just a means to an end for the plot, although you watch that movie and man that e p a guy has a point, doesn't he peck <laughs> i mean they're they're essentially putting the souls of the dead into this unlicensed <laughs> machine I mean, who who knows, and yet the, you know? <laughs>
3: and yet the movie makes him look like the bad guy. Right, right. right. Oh
2: yeah,
0: well, yeah. I mean he is a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> but Well d well, do you think he actually means that what he says to the mayor and toward, towards the end? You know, about thinking that they're just, you know, drugging people and then putting on a laser light show? Because if that because if that's the case, then they have nothing harmful to store.
1: Yeah, that's true. He kind of subverts his own point.
0: You know, mm-hmm. because yeah, so so so, wh- which am I to believe? You know, and, and it was kind of hard for me not to see him as also, um, as also a scientific voice because he's not he's not the local sheriff, you mm-hmm. know, and he's not, um, he's not the CIA who's concerned about you know possible violations of national security. He's the EPA. He's the voice of the government and science. Mm-hmm. And he's the only person in in the film with a kind of scientific point of view who is systematically opposed to the notion of the paranormal in the face of empirical evidence. Mm-hmm. He's the one who's a materialist, you know, come hell or high water, literally right. consistently. <laughs> and you know, yet
3: also not the entrepreneur though. I mean, I think that there is sort no, of a, an elevation of the entrepreneur. And I, I guess I did sound like I meant it, that this was an explicit, uh, verification of Reagan politics. I don't know that they were purposefully doing that, but I do think it runs uh, creepily, like uh, consistent with those, uh, with those, with those policies.
2: Well, see, the reason I said Cold War when I posed the question, Danny, is that I mean, the final event in the movie is uh, they save New York City by discharging a nuclear weapon in the middle of it. No, <laughs> and that <and laughs> no one gets
1: hurt. <laughs> well uh, you you've seen the you've seen the top of the building fall off and it just bounces off that barrier so yeah yeah and Sticks like are low.
2: yeah no <laughs> one below you know gets hit by anything uh all six of the human beings on top of the building come out unscathed Including uh,
1: the ones who are, like in the monster yeah, yeah
2: so i mean <laughs> I, I i've got to think there's some i mean you know, Doug, yeah. you know, how I learned to stop worrying and love the <laughs> nuclear backpack,
0: you know. I, yeah. I, hey, that is, the, that
1: is their second amendment right, man.
2: <laughs> oh, man. Right,
0: right to bear whatever those are. Just <laughs> don't cross <laughs> the streams. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <they're>...
2: <laughs> Send your letters to Dr. Michael Farmer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> one thing, though, that, uh, counteracts my own argument though it just occurred to me is that the kind of ultimate symbol for evil is this kind of corporate logo uh this the state puffed marshmallow man right and so that <laughs> uh, that is a subversion of corporate uh of, of free uh, you know corporate goodness right there and so um i think that that that, that possibly could be uh used against me but uh while well, we're course. on the subject of the state marshmallow
1: man although this this is off the subject of politics the best line reading in the entire movie is. Uh, Gozer has told them to choose the form of the destructor, right? And and there's a pause and, and the Gozer says the form has been chosen and and you, you hear the monster walking up and it, it cuts to Ray and he goes, It's a Stay Puft marshmallow man. <laughs> if you haven't watched the movie recently, go back and look at that that, that line reading is so masterful. <laughs> the delivery. I, it's I true. like that and I like uh I looked at the trap, Ray <laughs>
3: oh shoot also before we move on uh something else just occurred to me like the process of taking dissent from the new left say uh in the 70s and and translating it into the rhetoric of the uh of the libertarian right now uh, i think has precedent though when you think about How the old left was this Trotskyite sort of radicalism that morphed – one strain of it at least morphed into the neoconservative movement. And so I think that there is sort of a cultural precedent for taking um, this sort of rhetoric. And all I mean is is that I feel like the Ghostbusters movie is a sign of that same kind of process that was going on with the, the sort of uh, the, the New York intellectuals at the early part of the century.
2: Right, right. It, it doesn't have to be a propaganda piece for it to be informed by those intellectual movements. Right. Yes. Hmm. Which I you know – I'm perfectly fine with that, Danny. I didn't have a problem with it. I just thought it was funny that it said – that you started your speech by saying, I'm not going to get political and you ended up on the Tea Party. (laughs) Well, in the wake of Harold Ramis' death, what can I do? It's like, you know, I'm I'm not going to use any critical theories to talk about hegemonic (laughs) metanarratives. That's no no phallocentral...
3: I do
1: think we have a record here in terms of how long it took Danny to mention the New York intellectuals.
2: <laughs> oh, that's a hoot, that's a hoot. Oh, man. Well, guys, I'm I'm looking at the clock. We should probably start heading for the door. David, it is 30 years later, although it's, you know, more like a few hours later for you uh, since this movie emerged into our consciousness. Harold Ramis has just left us. Beyond what we've said here, what else can a Christian humanist say about Ghostbusters? Speak your piece and then send it around the horn.
0: Oh, my. Um, one, as a, as a viewer, this movie really holds up well. A lot of 30-year-old films uh, have not aged that well, especially comedies. Mm-hmm. This has aged well. So just as a as a moviegoer I say, Yeah, more you know, more more more, top, more power to it, bring it on, go watch Ghostbusters. Woohoo. Um as you know, as a Christian humanist, uh you know, sort of having to put that hat back on again after a hiatus. Um I think it's I think it's fun to consider that we can wear that hat and we can talk about Ghostbusters and we can have the conversation that we've just had. Um, you know, the, 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 maybe, uh, maybe Harold Ramis and his, and his desire to, uh, present the, the scruffy underdogs versus the, the clean cut elites. Uh, I don't know, maybe he would resent it, but we can still have a conversation about this very scruffy movie. <laughs> But I'm kind of scruffing myself. The
2: yeah, moment. I was going to say maybe we're the scruffy elites.
0: <laughs> scruffy elites? Yeah, okay. Fair was enough. Band in high school. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nope, that's my piece.
3: Danny. <laughs> well, I think that. Uh, I I agree with David I think that this movie has held up really well I watched it recently with my, my two girls um, who are uh, nine and five and so I mean there are some moments I you know I'd don't say that word, that sort of thing. But um um but, <laughs> so
2: it's a very sexual movie. Like I'd forgotten yes. how how sexual. Oh my goodness. Yeah.
3: Yes, yeah, yeah. There yeah, there were certain moments I, I I'd forgotten about. But uh for them, they enjoyed it and they want to see it again. I mean it, so it has held up extremely well. And I, I perfectly uh enjoyed it too. Bill Murray for me is always watchable. I think that he's uh just carries this sort of like ironic uh like distance with him as david was talking about uh so well uh, and and to watch to see that age in him has just been has been a pleasure for me and so to see him as a younger person doing it it was it was fun for me to rewatch again um but as a uh, as a christian i think that it does raise interesting um uh i guess ethical questions as a christian uh, when you sort of have the Christian worldview and the Christian, not worldview, but the Christian like supernatural worldview uh, juxtaposed and thrown into direct conflict with uh, pagan gods that are shown to be real. uh, And and so that to me is like a troubling sort of narrative uh, uh, complication that is worth considering. I I feel like that it it makes uh, a consideration of Christianity's power all the more real when you see it, in direct conflict with actual like supernatural beings and, and mm-hmm. I think that uh it 's by no means uh orthodox or <laughs> theologically correct or anything like that, but in in the way that it isn 't it 's a very interesting movie uh, in that way
1: well, I have something much less theological to say um, except maybe in the sense that god 's providence may have been involved this movie didn 't wasn 't supposed to be what it is it was supposed to be a much longer movie featuring multiple teams of Ghostbusters that are going through time and and busting ghosts. And the only reason we got the movie we got is that the studio didn't have enough money for the special effects budget that would have been required Hmm. for Ackroyd's original vision. So thank God for that, right? I mean, sometimes the best thing that can happen to a work of art is that its it's creator has limitations.
2: Michael, sometimes I thank God for unanswered. No. Not yeah. not. <laughs> um, but the, the other thing
1: that was almost different is most of this cast wasn't supposed to be in the movie. Ramus didn't want to be in it. And I mean, try to imagine anybody other than him as Egon. Oh goodness. Except maybe John no. Turturro from Barton Fink. <laughs> um but but yeah uh, uh Lewis Tully was supposed to be played by John Candy. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Chevy Chase was supposed to play Egon or Vankman. Uh yeah, and uh, um, Eddie Murphy was supposed to play um, Winston. And none oh, of those things no, happened, us. and thank God they didn't because the, the the movie as it is, is cast just about perfectly. And it, it, you, you're never watching it. You would never think that any of these parts were anything but written for the four people who play them, five people, mm-hmm. I guess, including Lewis. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, again, less theological, is the dangers of the sequel to the comedy because if you've never seen Ghostbusters 2, it is basically the same movie um i mean with it with a few with a few exceptions it, it follows the same basic structure and the same basic beats and it is an impoverished movie because of it it's not terrible but it feels like a uh, it, it feels like something it feels like plato's drawing of a tree you know instead of the yeah. essence of the tree it feels like a, it feels like a, a cheap, relatively cheap copy uh Despite you know costing much more than the original, I'm sure. Right,
2: right. And then with an art historian instead of an EPA agent as the bad guy, I'm not sure what to do with that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe Harold Ramis should have uh, written a letter to an art historian <sighs> apologizing instead of just the president. <laughs> so anyway, not, I didn't have anything uh, very theological to say there. But I, I think the history and post-history of this film are very interesting because we could have gotten something – um, very different and much less interesting. Can you imagine Chevy chase as Egon Spangler? Oh my gosh.
0: Oh, heaven help us. Yeah. No,
1: <laughs> yeah. No, thank you.
0: He, he had to be played completely straight. It just, completely, yeah. well, and, well, and, and, uh, and, 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 same thing with, uh, and I'm forgetting their names, you know, right. Um, stance. Thank you. No, Oh no. Yeah. 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 Stance. Uh, Dan Aykroyd is so lovable. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. I he like is. his character so much, and that really surprised me because I usually don't. My my reaction towards Dan Aykroyd is not usually that of affection, <laughs> <laughs> but he's he he's so lovable. And Zedmore plays it. Uh, you know the guy, Ernie uh, Hudson. Yeah, yeah, Ernie Hudson. Uh, Zed that that character. He plays it so straight too. He's enthusiastic, but. You know, if if anyway, I, I I love the sincerity of Stance and Zed Moore and Spengler, and that that makes it so much casting. Well,
1: they, yeah. the 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 yeah. other thing is when you watch this, you you kind of want to wring Murray's neck.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but then again, I like old sad Bill Murray much better than young smart alecky Bill Murray. <laughs>
2: Oh, no, that's funny, because that, that was actually going to be my point, is that, I mean, this might be my favorite Bill Murray role, uh, but I also like his roles in, in Ramus films. So, I mean, I like John in Stripes. I like, uh I'm trying to think, um, I like Carl in Caddyshack. But, I mean, this one, the, the reason that this guy strikes me is that, you know, I've seen actors who obviously didn't want to be playing the roles they were playing, but this one you actually get a character who doesn't want to be part of this story. And, and, and in my mind, I mean, that, that, that distinction is one that, I mean, really does drive this movie. I mean, you actually have a character who is in the middle of this universe that has certain rules, uh, and he's, he's just giving the, the finger to those rules at every turn. Uh, you know, I mean, when he's supposed to be the romantic lead, he's still cracking wise about it. Uh, when you know he is supposed to be the leadership figure, he's still cracking wise about it. Uh, it it's one of those things where, uh, again, I mean, I, I cannot imagine anyone but Bill Murray doing this. Uh, and and like I said, I mean, it, it's really in my mind uh, what keeps the movie from—I don't even know how to put it. I mean, it, not from taking itself too seriously because it really doesn't do that. Uh, but from sort of, oh, I'm trying to think I, 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 I had a phrase cooked up before the episode, but now I'm, I've kind of lost it without Bill Murray. Uh, you as the audience member might be suspending your disbelief a little too high. Sure. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, he's the one who keeps bringing you back by making fun of you for being in, uh, Spangler's corner and I love yeah. him for it. <laughs> he keeps it from being a straight horror film too for one thing there you go thank you danny Thank
3: you. Yeah. Danny. not that
1: i knew that when i first saw this movie i remember <laughs> well, my mother brought home a vhs of this she, she must have rented it and we did not make it to the opening credits because i was so afraid of that library scene but i was probably five years old
2: well there you go there you go well I, I, before we head for the door here i do want to talk about some future plans for uh, what Michael has dubbed the Christian Humanist Radio Network. First of all, uh, David Grubbs is back on. He's going to be back on episodes for the rest of the semester, so we're pumped about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do not think, though, listeners, you've heard the last of Danny Anderson. Uh, he is in development for a new show that we're going to be uh, putting on our website and distributing. Uh, Danny, do you want to give us the, the elevator ride version of your new show? Sure. I, um. Uh, Michael's already made fun of me for this, I guess, so I guess I can go ahead and, and uh, dive in
3: again. But, uh, you know, I happen to like the New York intellectuals. And so the, uh, uh, they all sort of uh, were kind of congregated around this publication, Partisan Review. And so I was looking for a name that sort of evoked that, but pointed it towards Christian concerns. And uh, Nathan helped me out uh, with the term sectarian review. And I think that we're going to go with that. Uh, and uh, what I have the idea is some sort of thing where we take listener poetry and, and not just listener, but, but poetry that we can have a little segment where we have poetry read on the air. Uh, we have a, a segment where we'll sort of talk about some sort of contemporary event in which the past can help us consider it in some way, some form of culture. Uh, and then some, perhaps a movie review of the week or something like that. Just some sort of like segmented little thing where we uh, consider uh, contemporary culture through the lens of uh, uh, the resources of the past.
1: So you're doing like a little variety
3: show. Eh, if you want to call it that the sectarian review. Yes. Yes.
1: I so, am listeners. disappointed that you're not going with your original title, the Danny show.
3: my response to that was with ones and ones of listeners right
1: yes
2: (laughs) so listeners if you love danny anderson and we know you do uh Mm. keep your eyes peeled we're going to be announcing this uh we're looking at probably an august or september launch for the sectarian review uh i for one am going to be an early adopter i'm listening to every episode i'm calling it now Uh, also coming down the pike, we're going to have our, our semester trilogy. Uh, and for this semester, we're going to interview, well not interview, but we're going to have on board as one of our hosts, a psychologist, a physicist and a meteorologist. Uh, they don't walk into a bar, but they are going to be doing a podcast (laughs) together. The name of that show is going to be the book of nature and it will be coming down the pike. I'm not sure when we're still working out logistics with that. But we're going to have each of them on the show individually to have a conversation about their discipline. Then the three of them are going to be launching into a new project. Again, keep your eyes peeled on Facebook, on the website. We're going to announce that. I am excited that both of these projects are taking off. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael, I mean, do you want to emote a little bit?
1: (laughs) Uh, Just just to say that I suspect this will not be the last time you hear Danny Anderson on this show. My guess is he will be our go-to replacement host. If one of us has to miss a week.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, that said the Christian Humanist podcast. The, the show that started all of this silliness is coming back next week. What are we talking about? Michael?
1: Uh, I have no idea, of course. So you'll just have to tune in and find out. <laughs> it's been a weird week. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, no
2: worries, man. No worries. You're such, That's, you're such a Venkman.
1: I remember 20 <laughs> seconds ago that I was supposed to do the show next week. <laughs>
2: Well, folks, we are back. <laughs> so in Man. the meantime, while you await the announcement of that next episode, which also will probably be the release of that next episode, uh, I want to remind you that we are on the Internet at ChristianHumanist.org. You can find us on email at thechristianhumanist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. So is the Christian Feminist podcast. You should like both of those groups. Also, both podcasts are on iTunes. The more reviews we get and the more stars those reviews get, the more people discover our podcast. Of course, we also love when our listeners tell other people about it. Bring some people along, folks. The more, the merrier. We do this for our listeners, and the more that we can get, uh, the more can jump into this fun conversation that sometimes even talks about Ghostbusters. So, with all of that emoting and excitement and uh you know we we came up just short of playing michael w smith songs this is nathan gilmore on behalf of danny anderson michael farmer david grubbs saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger